Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 213. Today is Sunday the 25th of September 2016, and this interview is with Ocean Lunny, speaker, musician, and mobile expert. Ocean is Senior Marketing Development Manager and Roving Evangelist at Open Market, a mobile engagement platform for enterprise. In this conversation, we talk about how music can help set your digital mindset, what's going on in mobile, how to optimize your mobile strategy, and the power and setbacks of SMS and MMS as a marketing tool. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host and author of The Mindset, that's M-Y-N-D-S-E-T dot com, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes to the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to the quick. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to the Minter Dialogue. Today, I have an exciting guest, a great friend, Oysen Luni. He's got an amazing background, so we're going to get have some fun and listen to how he got to where he got to, and then we'll get into a lot about mobile. So, Oysen, tell us, let's say, the journey that got to where you got to here. Oysen, start with that. Sure. Thank you. Great to be here, Minter, and thanks for the invite. Uh, big fan of your podcast. Um, well, it's been a kind of interesting journey, shall we say. I, uh, I kind of dropped out of art college twice, and uh, you know, but uh, I had good reasons. Um, I was in a band, and we got a record deal. We signed to Talking Loud and A&M in the States. We toured with U2 and Depeche Mode. We kind of you know, had a, a career in the music industry, which very few people have these days. And uh, that lasted for about four years. Uh, and then at the end of that, the band broke up between one thing and the other, and uh, I started doing some solo and joint projects with other people. Um, but in parallel to this, I became a father for the first time. And um, this was sort of when the financial shit hit the fan, and I realized I hadn't actually made any new money aside from royalties for over a year. And uh, I had no income to speak of. I had no skills aside from making tea in studios and writing music. So I was a little bit screwed. Um, Luckily for me, I got an invite to appear on the BBC World Service on a programme called Kaleidoscope from a great friend, Maeve Quigley. And uh, I was appearing from the point of view of a a musician and a punter. Uh, And this was very early days of our our, our now kind of uh, constant use of MP3s and the internet for, for music. So I went into an internet cafe, as you did at the time, because we didn't really have the internet at home. Uh, and I did some research and I thought, okay, this is exactly what I need to do. This could be a career. And anyway, this is the future of music and entertainment. So I kind of jumped ship from the world of music into uh, the world of tech. So what year are we now? Oh, wow. It's late 90s. Right. Late 90s. So not as early as many people, but still, like for me, it was early enough to, to kind of get in and immerse myself. Definitely. Yeah, so I I, um, I attended a course out in Shadwell that was a you know the, the internet for dummies and how basically you know how to use Notepad and email and how to um, how to set up a small business and use the internet for marketing and sales, and uh, that was completely transformational. And uh, after this short course, I um, I asked some neighbours uh, who were working in tech. I said, look, I really need to work in tech. This is absolutely where the future of music and entertainment is. Uh, I've no experience, I've no qualifications, what can I do? And they said, well, you know, have you got four years for a computer science degree? And I said, absolutely not. I need something I can do next week. And they said, okay, well, get a job in tech support. And basically, they'll, you know, they won't treat you very well. They definitely won't pay you well, but you will learn so much there and they, you will learn like how everything works just by doing it. 
And um, so that was my first gig in tech. Wow. And then it, I kind of went from there to junior designer, junior developer, bit of coding, bit of design. Ended up account and pro- project managing, uh, and then became a product manager, and then became a country manager. And you know, this is all different companies. So really, just kind of followed uh, the fast-moving conveyor belt from the late '90s. So uh, I think I'm very fortunate, and um, I've always been able to keep an element of music making uh, going on the side of my my career in tech. So I write music for film scores from time to time. Uh, I do some DJing from time to time, and uh, I really find that the, the two things complement each other. But I don't. I, I think it's fair to say I don't come from a typical background uh, for people in my industry. Right, no doubt. Well, the th- one of the things we share amongst, other than just needing to be at South by Southwest every year, which is music, film, and digital. You and I, I I've just launched myself as a filmmaker, and so I've got that going on. Of course, as being author, and 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 so I, I try to. Th- rationalize the parallel and the bridges between filmmaking and digital for you what are the parallels between musician and and digital and mobile which is the big topic that's a fantastic question um i think uh, there's a lot of learnings you can take from the world of music in terms of uh personal branding networking uh, identifying where your audience are um playing to the crowd uh, mm. that can happen in many uh, many different guises in business um, and uh, and also reading the crowd as well and kind of listening to what people actually want and trying to f- you know trying to fix their problems or kind of fulfill their wishes rather than having more so your own set agenda about things have to be a certain way uh, I think you can learn a lot by listening uh, very much in business and um, I think you know I, I I found that that kind of leaping from the world of, of uh, the music industry into the world of like the technology industry was a tremendous learning experience. Uh, it was like a very concentrated MBA in some respects. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to work with great people all through my career um, in music and technology. And, uh, you know, people are, are willing to help. They're willing to show you stuff. Um, if you show an, uh, an aptitude for learning and a, and a, a desire to learn. To listen. Yeah, absolutely. Willingness to listen very much. Um, you know, you can get great mentoring and great advice from you know people who have done many degrees and many MBAs. And another thing I found was that music is sort of a great leveler. You know, I've been to some interesting conferences that w- would be the last place I'd expect to have a conversation about you know um, Little Feet or Lowell George or you know some you know pristine Batman musician. Abs- <laughs> absolutely. Uh, and you, you know, and then you find yourself in Amsterdam at a at a conference all about you know telco network security, speaking to the head of global security for one of the you know like major operators, and you know all of a sudden you find a shared affinity for a certain guitar solo, and um, that that's really my main kind of takeaway is that, is that music is is a, a language that we all understand and we all speak no matter where we're from or what we're doing, mm. and if you can connect to somebody on a personal level, that can make your business life a bit easier because you're already connected and you're not you're not trying to climb a huge mountain you're kind of you're you know you're friends you're connected and so you can speak about how you can work with each other you're normal people exactly yeah it it does level it lowers everyone's guard i think well just to riff on that point in my past i had dementia no i had delusions of grandeur of of creating a, a new philosophy and the the whole philosophy was based on the string theory quantum physics and, and the reason why it really resonated with me was the idea that we're all strings. And, of course, since I play guitar, the, the notion of the stringing of your bow and the stringing of your guitar uh, is, a, is energy. 
And so we're all energy. And if we can find ways to resonate together, so finding a, a harmony or, or being in tune with somebody else is where I went with that whole story. And anyway, a little bit of a digression. So, Oisin, in your, in your ascent, in your journey, you also worked on a social media platform, so, and this was, which had 250 million uh, people in it. So tell us about this. Yeah, well, that was a, a really interesting social space for teenagers called Habo Hotel. It was run by a Finnish company called Sulaka. And uh, I came on board as the uh, UK and Ireland country manager, uh, I guess, seven years ago now, as it was quite a while ago. Uh, and that was a wonderful experience because it was a very beautifully run Finnish company and it was all about these transparent metrics and KPIs. And because they built the platform completely from scratch in-house, um, it's like every country manager, every community manager, every you know person had some sort of a dashboard they could refer to uh, to see how well they were doing, how well their country, how well their territory was doing in real time. It was phenomenal. And they had quite an enlightened kind of scrum and sprint uh, method for, for kind of delivering new features. They had uh, senior leadership teams stand up meetings every morning where they would look at the dashboards. And because the dashboards were so well designed, they could see in an instant if something was a bit awry in Brazil or we'd suddenly having a lot of... Um, a lot of kind of drop-offs from a certain ad campaign globally. They could pinpoint in on that and then notify the country manager and then we could take action. So it was uh, kind of mind-blowing in terms of the efficiency. And I, you know, as I kind of found out subsequently, this is not uncommon for a Finnish technology company. They're very well run and very well designed. And we had an incredible CTO who really was one of the, the first employees at the company, I think, and he just built this, this beautiful cathedral of data. Um, it was a great service for teenagers. It was, uh, you know, highly monitored. We worked closely with CEOPS in the UK. And, you know, in the early days, you know, as Facebook and MySpace and, and these other platforms were, uh, were, were coming up, we were sort of held up as a shining example of how to run a secure, uh, safe space for teenagers to, to go and network. Um, now, unfortunately, the, um, oh, it's just one of those things. So you, you couldn't really do what we needed to do in Macromedia Flash to start out with mm-hmm. when the platform was launched. So it was always done in Macromedia Shockwave, which is a slightly older technology, but it kind of it was um, it was more advanced in its early stage. Right, so just uh, for the pun, you know, the lay the lay people, what on earth does that mean for us in terms? Of, is it just what what is the betterness of the Flash versus the, the Shockwave? Sure. Well, um, Shockwave was a uh, to begin with a slightly more sophisticated uh, embedded plugin so in a similar way if you go onto youtube and you see a video it's a what's called a plugin sits behind the scene to make sure that video format which is maybe a quicktime movie or an mpeg4 that can actually play just within your browser window so shockwave and flash were two plugins that were um, both developed by macromedia which was then bought by adobe and um, flash became the favored tool of uh, web designers for developing very rich interactive browser-based applications um, so, for instance, in the early days of Facebook, when it st- really started taking hold of global consciousness, um, we had a lot of social games such as uh, Farmville, companies like Zynga and Playfish launched these incredibly immersive and even addictive worlds. Now, at the time, um, the, the Habbo Hotel, as it was called, had been going for quite a few years. It was still based in Shockwave. Shockwave had unfortunately become the kind of poor companion to Macromedia Flash, which was getting investment and, and really kind of picked up the global imagination of developers. So what we found is that our community couldn't really be included in Facebook because we were using this slightly older technology. So we eventually ported to Macromedia Flash. This is quite a, a boring techie anecdote, but I'll finish it anyway. I, so this, we, is the, this is the thing. <laughs> Even if it's boring, yeah. 
we do need to understand the tech stuff and the legacy systems yeah. we have. And Indeed. so I'm with you. I'm following. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Anyway, long story short, we moved to Macromedia Flash, so it could be embedded on uh, on Facebook. And we started launching the, the uh, platform on Facebook. It was hugely successful. But by that stage, I I think really the the global consciousness had moved on in terms of where they were engaging. Teenagers were engaging in in. Uh, Farmville, all these social games that kind of shared progress and invited people to level up and uh, involved really invitations to all one friends group so um, we kind of continued with that for a while but around the time I got um, headhunted if you like and invited to uh, write a film soundtrack which has been a great passion of mine, it's something I always wanted to do this this wonderful film director called um, Ender Hughes and um, good for you. Yeah, it was wonderful. So I, I kind of, um, you know, took a break from the world of tech, uh, did a bit of consultancy for a uh, mobile phone network in the in the in Ireland, and uh, wrote a film score for this wonderful film called Men of Arlington. And that was a incredible privilege. I was kind of involved in the scoring from the very early stages of the rushes. So I was kind of uh, sitting with the director and the the editor Russell. Uh, as they put together the story and they pieced it together out of these many, many hours of footage. And uh, what we found is uh, when I went to the studio and developed some themes and went back to the edit suite, certain themes would sit, fit certain characters. And then the fact that they had a theme made it easier for the editor to place the story together. So the, the film and the score evolved at the same time. Usually, as I understand it, they, they usually give the scoring to happen at the end of when it's cut. Absolutely. You know, the, I, I was over at IBC uh, Rising Stars last weekend, and I heard that from quite a few people. They say, wow, that's such a luxury to actually be working on the score at the same time as it's been put together. Um, so that was a great, great experience. So I just want to get back to the, um, uh, the, the uh, shockwave to Flash. So the lesson learned is what out of that? Well, I think don't underestimate uh, the challenge of technology and you can find the rug pulled from under your feet very quickly um, by, by way of kind of contextual technical developments. So, you know, the, um, I guess the technical strategy team were aware of Flash and aware it should be a priority at some stage, but uh, Facebook exploded so quickly in a way that couldn't really have been predicted. We really found that Flash was a much more significant force uh, that we perhaps underestimated uh, how important it was for our business. Well, maybe you're listening to uh, Mr. Jobs a little too often. <laughs> you know, how, how he apparently had a personal vendetta against oh, Flash, right? Hated Flash, my God. He, 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 Do you know why? Well, I think it was unsecure. I mean, I, I was over at a, a great conference in Belfast last year called Enterconf. It was run by the, yeah. the Web Summit people. And I saw a great uh, presentation from Charles Henderson, who was the uh, CTO of an uh, uh, Infosec company, and uh, he said something along the lines of, you know, 35 to 40% of all vulnerabilities in terms of getting hacked are to do with backdoors and macromedia flash. It is horrendously unsecure. And that's possibly why Sulaka avoided it. I don't know. Mm. Um, but I know this, is, uh, this could be why some individuals who are senior in the world of technology have, they take umbrage to it just because it leaves gaping holes for people's details to be hacked and for people to have a, a, a less than optimal web experience. Well, it certainly is successful, so all the same. Um, let's go on to what you're doing now in, in, at Open Media. Oh, it's open Beca Market. Uh, open Market, excuse me, <laughs> no of problem. course. Um, so, uh, because you are a really well-known speaker, expert on mobile, and a thought leader. Uh, so, tell us what your angle is on mobile, because, I mean, really... 
Of course, it's not new to us that mobile is important, but it still seems extraordinary that so many companies have apps that are hard to use, even websites, of course, that are hard to use, but even worse, experiences on mobile. So what, what, what is your take on the mobile world? And we're going to plug in and we're going to dive into a few topics there. Sure. Excellent. Well, yeah, I'm a senior market development manager at Open Market. And that basically means I'm a bit of a roving evangelist. I support the marketing and sales teams. And um, I connect with people uh, by speaking at conferences, sharing thought leadership. You know, I contribute to The Guardian and Digital Donut in various places from time to time. And um, I just kind of help people become aware of the issues around mobile, enterprise mobility, and uh, in particular, global mobile messaging, because this is what we do at Open Market. So um, I think we've reached a, a kind of interesting stage in what The Economist termed our evolution to Phono Sapien. So we have a planet of smartphones populated by Phono Sapien. And we've reached a stage where we've kind of gotten through the, uh, the, the, the app-based hysteria. Now, the apps are wonderful. I have way too many apps on my phone, we but do. we all do, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Oh, no, I know. Sorry about that. <laughs> and uh, the thing is, the, the kind of optimal number of apps that we can intelligently process at any one time, I think, is around the 14 mark. Well, Anything? that's like the number you have on your home, home screen. Exactly. Home yeah, exactly. So most people, you know, most apps installed by most people are not used. I think the average number of apps... According to Comscore, the average number of apps installed by the average American per month is zero. So most app installs are coming from a kind of uh, a segment of early adopters. And we're also reaching a stage where we're experiencing app fatigue because everybody, every retailer wants you to install their app. And if you walk down a typical high street, there's 10, 20, 50 retailers. How likely are you to install 50 apps for those 50 retailers not very likely maybe one or two if they're really offering you something incredible but um, but we are mobile first we are phono sapiens we expect brands to be able to interact with us on our mobile devices any way anywhere that we want uh, we are used to any commerce anytime we can take out our phone in a store scan a barcode and have it delivered by Amazon Prime the next day the technology is magnificent but in terms of engagement and mobile engagement um there is app fatigue and there is also fatigue with banner ads and mobile ads. So we've seen the, world, uh, the rise of ad blockers as well. Um, now, this is kind of big ramifications for the world of retail in that if you want, you know, consumers want to connect with you using their mobile devices, you want to connect with them as a brand. Um, email is useful for certain things, but, um, but for other things, it's just a spam channel and stuff will go in your spam folder. And, you know, I've got a Gmail account with 40,000 unread Gmails, and I, I, I don't know when I'll get around to even deleting them. Um, so at Open Market, we kind of look at this conundrum of like everyone on the planet pretty much has a mobile device. There is, I think, 6.2 billion handsets, uh, SMS-enabled handsets globally compared to, you know, 2 million people who have access to email and that kind of thing. SMS is, as Portio Research christened it earlier this year, it is the global language. It's the, the language of 6.2 billion people. So how can brands connect with people on their mobile devices? Now, what we say at Open Market are there are five kind of main channels for a brand to connect with a consumer. Uh, that's email, of course. It's voice, making a phone call. Uh, quaint as it seems uh, with, with these supercomputers we have in our pockets. Uh, there's also uh, mobile apps, of course. Uh, there's Finally, there's uh, browser-based technology such as mobile apps and uh, ads, should I say. 
Uh, and finally, there's SMS. So we look after the SMS side of things, and we help global brands engage with consumers by just simplifying their user journeys, offering real value by putting in an SMS-based component to their user journey. So what this means, typically, say for um, one of our clients is a, a very, very large and very, very well-known um, European broadcaster, and they have millions, many millions of clients, and they looked at what was happening in their call centers, and they saw that a quarter of their calls were just people who'd forgotten their passwords. So if you think about, you know, every time a call center operative is pinged, uh, it costs five pounds, the consumer, yeah, five to 20 pounds, whatever it costs, the consumer has to sit there listening to a flute solo for half an hour, and then by the time they speak to an operative for the very simple question of how to reset their password, they're furious. And so it's a very suboptimal kind of customer experience. So what they've done is they've introduced two-factor authentication, which is the uh, open markets platform. So if somebody wants to reset their password, you know, we all forget our passwords, they can just send a text message in or enter their mobile number in a web form, and they get a code to reset their password delivered to the phone instantly. Now, of course, this costs pennies compared to the many pounds it costs to have somebody in a call center answering the phone. So it's a better experience for the consumer. It saves this company literally millions every year, if not every quarter. And, um, and it means the operatives in the call center have a much better experience because they're dealing with the high-touch, kind of emotionally intelligent queries and they don't have such a, a bottleneck of people who've forgotten their passwords. Um, so basically, just so I understand, just to unpack one second, Open Markets platform is a platform that would be great for call centers, for example, or Absolutely. internal and external. Yeah, good for call centers, good for brands. Uh, we supply to uh, the world's largest e-commerce provider and, um, and one of the world's largest uh, retailers as well. So the larger enterprise customers, uh, a billion plus revenues, dollars revenue um, uh, per year, they would tend to contract with us directly because they have the necessary staff. And, uh, you know, sure. for a company like... Um, I mean, to give you another example, uh, a, a, one of the world's largest management consultancies, uh, they have 250,000 employees globally, and they use us for emergency alerts. And um, so what will happen is that if they need to get in touch with, say, you know, 50,000 employees in this country because there's an earthquake, they've got a few options. You've got those five channels again. You've got email, voice, mobile app, mobile web, and SMS. Now, you know, email is going to go in the spam folder. Voice is going to take literally years for a call center to call all of those. Right, no, you know, in, in, the, exactly. in the case of an emergency, yeah. it's much more immediate. I want to get into a couple of, um, let's call it bugbears or possibly negatives with regard to mobile and SMSs. The first um, is every time I receive an MMS or multimedia message, I, I tend to think it's spam and it has a link and I'm nervous. Tell me I'm wrong and uh, how to understand whether the MMS is an appropriate one or not. That's a very good question. I mean, when we send MMSs for our clients, uh, it, it's kind of delivered embedded in the message. So typically on the iPhone, you'll see possibly an animated GIF on your home screen. And so we've done a lot of work uh, like that for people like Open Fundraising, or say Open Mobile Group as I know now, which is they do very innovative campaigns for people like the World Wildlife Fund and UNICEF. Um, I think when... A person sends you an MMS from their phone. If it's a slightly older phone, it goes through a slightly different um, path. So instead of actually getting an embedded piece of content in a message, as, as we're kind of used to most of the time, you get a link saying, hey, somebody sent you this picture message, and you have to log into this website, and yada, yada. Now, my, as, to the best of my knowledge, this is more a kind of person-to-person, -person, a P2P issue. But A2P, which is the area that Open Market exists in, is application-to-person. So it's not like there's a person in open market sending the text as we have a platform it connects to the, the mobile phone companies globally 
uh, kind of plugs into their APIs and you know looks after all the interconnections and all the kind of you know messy technical stuff that's quite difficult. And uh, you know, so a major retailer can log into our platform, send an MMS campaign, and it'll arrive beautifully embedded on your home screen. Right. Um, so right. it, it depends on the sender, I think. Right, I think okay. that's the issue. Right. I, I guess I'm not on any of those mailing lists. But speaking of those mailing lists, what bugs me no end is the lack of opt-in or the lack of visibility on opt-in. And, or put another way, the number of times I get spammed by people are, uh, that have found my, email, my, 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 my mail uh, so my number and I find an SMS as opposed to an email extremely personal and uh, I feel rather violated that someone should get a ping on my SMS because I, I, I assume SMSs are more urgent or at least more reactive to as opposed to an email and, and, and that bugs me no end so where are we on protecting the consumer uh, and, and making for protecting the SMS as a channel that has its position but should not be abused. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, that's one of my personal bugbears. Um, right. I think, well, the important thing to know about any SMS message that's sent in the UK is if you reply stop, they can never message you again. Even if it doesn't say that in the actual text message, just reply to that message with the word stop and they have to switch off and they can never contact you again. Well, by law, but that yes. doesn't mean they will stop. Um, then there are other, there's uh, organizations like PhonePay Plus, they're the industry regulators for any kind of premium rate services in the UK, so you can raise a complaint. You can also, um, if it comes from a short code, you can contact the short code provider. Um, now, at Open Market, we're members of a lot of different industry bodies. We work with people like PhonePay Plus, um, uh, the Mobile Ecosystem Forum. Uh, now, as it happens, the Mobile Ecosystem Forum is, uh, have initiated a cross-industry and cross um kind of cross uh, yeah like cross industry initiative uh, which is all about kind of protecting the integrity of SMS because as you say it's a premium channel people perceive it as an important message so you tend to open it and go for it first now the worst thing that can possibly happen with an SMS is that it's not relevant the number one rule for any kind of SMS based communications or marketing is it has to be relevant if it's not relevant if it's not wanted then you're on the it's like that's it's game over you know it's so there are a couple of different opt-ins available by law. There's a soft opt-in and a hard opt-in. Now, a soft opt-in is a bit more fluffy. It's kind of like, you know, when you put your details into a homepage of a service you're registering for or, or you're kind of connecting a Facebook app, it says, you know, very small print, we can use any of your contact information for anything we like. Is that okay? Uh, click here. Click, click, click the much larger button to agree. Now, we always recommend to our clients they have a hard opt-in just because... SMS is the most personal marketing channel. It's the most personal communication channel. It's, it's the one that we reserve, um, you know, emotionally for emergencies and important messages. Like the crisis we're talking about. Absolutely, yeah. The emergency, the, the crisis or delivery. You know, you don't want it to go into your email folder, but you want to know right then and there. You, you know, when I deliver stuff these days, um, I resent when I don't get a text message telling me it's coming the next day because, you know, your last best experience as a customer is, is the customer experience you want from that point onwards with everybody you deal with. It's very true. Um, so SMS always has to be relevant. Um, so there are, there are kind of legal recourses. You know, I, I would recommend for any companies, they don't use a soft opt-in, but they use a hard opt-in. And a hard opt-in specifically says, we're going to send you this to your mobile phone in a mobile message. Do you agree? 
and it's got to be really clear. And I think as well, that's an opportunity for companies to fine-tune their messaging and say, actually, do we want to send this by text? Is this better by email? Is this better by a mobile push or an app? Mm. You know, text is a premium channel. You have to protect it for the things that are perceived as premium messages in the consumer's mind. So a lot of business process optimization falls under that, that last bracket because it is important. It's going to save you going from one half of the warehouse to another. Um, it is, uh, you know, internal processes are vastly improved. To say if there's a, a company that's that's dealing with shift workers arriving, arriving to a call center, they're going to have a busy weekend. Instead of calling 500 people to say if they see if they're free for a, a weekend shift, they can just send a text saying, hey, first 20 people to reply, get the shift. Right. And then it's automated, it's done instantly, 20 people reply, case closed. Anybody who replies after that gets a message saying, sorry, you weren't one of the first 20. If you have a cancellation, we'll invite you. Um, mobile is so efficient and so uh, able to optimize these different business processes, both internally in terms of operations and externally for the consumer, thinking like things like password resets and delivery notifications. Um, yeah, this is a reason why the MEF is initiating this. What, what is the MEF? Oh, the Mobile Ecosystem Forum. Yeah, we're members. They're, they're, they're a great, great industry body. And uh, we're part of their uh, kind of cross-industry um, working group. And it's all about keeping the integrity of SMS. And it's all about making sure that there's no spam, making sure there's no people who operate in the gray areas and, you know... Th- they, they don't kind of uh, adhere to opt-in rules. You know, right. We think it's, it's an important channel, so it's got to be protected. Right. I have a couple last questions before we close off. The first one is, what is the durability of a phone list? We talk about email lists mm. that l- lose validity or there's a decay of something like 20% after six months. Mm. With systems like Libara and, and these other temporary telephone numbers that are constantly out there what's what how's it going on and, and how valid is a telephone list these days yeah. that's a great point now i think the, the number one kind of remark there is the uh, a phone list is is as valid as your initial conversation with them so you know a hard opt-in means it's very valid um if you're sending them kind of targeted offers notifications etc it's really valid. If it's something the consumer actually wants, it's really valid. But beyond that, in terms of a, a technical cutoff time, six months is the amount of time that you need to, after which you need to stop t- sending so many messages. You have to be proactive in reaching out to uh, mobile consumers, in the UK at least, um, uh, according to regulation. You have to reach out to them at least once every six months because after six months, if you bring your number back to your mobile operator and you move to another one and you get a new number... The mobile networks in the UK have to sit on the number for six months, but then after that, it goes back into circulation. Mm. So if I was to, you know, if you were to opt in uh, to, to get kind of alerts on, uh, you know, gigs from your favorite artist near, near where you live or something like this, um, I would have to send you a message at least once every six months just to make sure that I was still, you know, <clears throat> sorry, not email, to still make sure that I was still messaging Minter and, uh, and not somebody who's, right. who's got the new phone. Mm-hmm. So six months is your absolute cutoff, but, you know, as we were kind of talking about earlier, the most important thing is that it's relevant mm-hmm. and it's wanted mm-hmm. and, uh, and also it's timely. There's another thing which is interesting as opposed to like a social media message. What type of reactivity can you get? Because it seems like so often it's just a one-way thing. Yeah, uh, yeah this is a really good point. Uh, it's a common misconception with mobile messaging that it's just a broadcast channel. Um, if anything, I would say the complete opposite. Mobile is, is like the last channel you should be broadcasting on. I mean, broadcasting is great for email. It's great for, you know, TV and radio, obviously. 
but mobile devices, as we've discussed earlier, you know, if you get the wrong mobile message, it's 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 offensive. Right. You know? So I'm thinking, for example, NHS will send you a, yeah. a, a thing saying your your rendezvous on Monday at four yeah. o'clock reminder, yeah. and that's a one way message, and I, I think that's brilliant. But for the rest, a lot of the times from corporates, the way I feel it is it's sort of like broadcasting. It's like, oh, there's a new discount on, and you know. <laughs> I think there should always be a return path. I mean, broadcast messages are fine for kind of updates. Uh, you know, your flight is delayed. There's a right. volcano in Iceland. That's valid, you know. contextual. Absolutely. But I think some companies are kind of missing a trick in that SMS is two-way. It's two-way globally. 6.1 million, 6.1 billion handsets have this capability for you to text them or for them to text you back. So, um, you know, when to companies want to interact with their customers uh, maybe uh, as you say there's uh, you know when you get this message saying your nhs appointment is tomorrow there is the option for you know reply one to reschedule reply two to speak to an operator reply three for more information about our whatever it is i would you even know? say reply four for confirm yeah, absolutely because you know that's a validation and it's a return so i said we must uh, Unfortunately, this I, I, I'm sure we could have gone on for another at least 30 minutes. Um, what's the best way for someone to uh, follow you, track you down, get in touch with uh, Open Market? Thank you, Minter. Uh, well, you can find me on the Twitter. I am at O-I-S-I-N-L-U-N-N-Y. And you can follow Open Market again on Twitter, at Open Market. Um, also, uh, my website is ushinlani.com. And you can find Open Market at openmarket.com. And, uh, yeah, please feel free to reach out, um, uh, send me a tweet or find me on LinkedIn. And uh, thank you again, Minter. It's been great to chat to you. I hope to see you at South by Southwest too. Definitely, my friend. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com. That's mindset with a Y, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please do rate it in iTunes. That really makes my day. Happy trails and enjoy Josh Sachs's Painted Fingers. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray and heal me with all your imperfections that you mention in your lack of Colors are-
with all your favorite shades, and we paint it with our fingers to show the world the way we feel. Oh, oh, the way I feel. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.